This evening we'll be in Judges chapter 6, so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. Judges chapter 6. Isn't it amazing how God sends trouble to Israel because of their sin? Now, we may be alarmed by God's vehement hatred toward their sin, and we should be, but we should also be struck by God's love in sending a deliverer. I mean, think how loving God is here. How would you treat a person who kept getting themselves into dangerous situations and you were always the one who cleaned up the mess? You take care of them and nurse them back to health, and then when they're healthy enough, they go right back into the same dangerous state that they were in before, causing more damage to themselves. I mean, how, how would you treat such a person? How many times would it take before you would finally give up on them? And yet here we find that God is so committed to the obedience of His people that He continues to pursue them by sending trouble and then a deliverer. After the death of Joshua and the leaders of Israel, there arose another generation who did not know God nor the works which He had done. And as a result, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, the false gods. And so the anger of the Lord burned against them, and He raised up foreign powers to oppress them. The first of these was from Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia oppressed Israel for eight years, and then Israel cried out for help. And God delivered them through Caleb's brother Othniel. And Israel had rest for 40 years. But then, like all the deliverers, Othniel died. And Israel went back to her evil ways. And so God strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, to oppress Israel. And He did so for 18 years. Until finally Israel cried out to God for help and God sent a left-hander, Ehud. Ehud rescued Israel from the oppression of the Moabites. And the land was undisturbed for 80 years. But then like all good deliverers, Ehud would die. And Israel would go back to her evil ways. At some point, God would send along a man by the name of Shamgar who would use an unlikely means, an ox goad, to kill 600 Philistines. And Israel would fall back into evil or they would dive in headfirst. And so God strengthens the Canaanites who were living in the land of Israel and they oppressed Israel for 20 years. But then Israel, like they always do, they cry out to God for help when they're in their most desperate state. And this time God raised up Deborah and Barak to rescue Israel. And Israel had to rest for 40 years. But as you can guess, the very next step after they are rescued, after they're delivered, is that they fall back into evil and the, the evil and the oppression seem to get worse and worse. Let's read our passage here tonight. This is really just the introduction to the main section of Gideon and his delivery of Israel, God using Gideon to rescue Israel. But we're just going to look at the first ten verses tonight. So Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. 
Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not obeyed Me. God faithfully pursues Israel and rescues them time and time again, and yet Israel still fails to obey Him. In verse 1, we see that evil follows deliverance. This great deliverance by Deborah and Barak and this uh, probably wicked woman named Jael. Immediately following that, we learn in verse 1 that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 210 years had passed since the death of Joshua. And Israel still hadn't gotten it figured out. God had delivered them through three major judges and one minor one. And there will still be eight more to go and they still will not figure it out. What we know from uh, chapter 2 and verse 19 is that this evil that they commit here in verse 1 is actually worse than the evil they did before. It's hard to imagine that that their serving of the Baals could be any worse, but apparently they get more uh, corrupt in their evil according to chapter 2 verse 19. Notice verse 10. This seems to be a first. God speaking here, He said, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed Me. You shall not reverence or revere these false gods, and yet, Israel, you're revering them. You have disobeyed Me. You haven't revered Me. You have revered them. And so God although it seems like he is a angry and or maybe a mean or frustrated God, he actually pursues them in love by bringing oppression on them. And he does this, as we've seen before, for the purpose of waking them up. Evil follows deliverance. And then oppression. Verses 1-6. through It says in verse 1 that the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Now, this was not the ordinary oppression that they had been facing. With the oppression of the Mesopotamians and the Moabites and the Canaanites, the the threat was simply they had to be subservient to them. Remember what they had to do 
to the Moabites, they had to bring a gift. They had to bring a tribute. That's how Ehud got in. That's how he deceived uh, Eglon. And so it wasn't as if they were fearful of their lives. It was more, we just have to, we have to serve them. They're our masters now. That was the threat. But now, it's become much worse. It's not just submission to their rule. It's, it's, it's much worse. Look at verse 2. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian. The sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Now instead of them living in their homes, they're going out to the caves and the dens. They're so fearful because they know that their very lives are at stake. That the Midianites very well could wipe them out. Whatever they sowed, verse 3, Midian would reap. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. Israel would do all the work of plowing and sowing and maintaining their crops. And when it was time for harvest, here come the Midianites along with their buddies, the Amalekites and the sons of the east. And they come in to take everything. Apparently, the Midianites were not strong enough to come in and take them on their own. That's why they had to kind of bring along some allies. And the Amalekites were happy to oblige them. The sons of the east here mentioned in verse 3 are probably some nomadic people group from the Syrian desert that Midian employs to come and, and pillage the Israelites' farms that they had set up. Notice what they do, verse 4. They, they destroy everything so, they could, so that they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. Israel would harvest barley and wheat in the early summer and then grapes and olives in the early fall. And apparently when this harvest time came, they were anticipating at least getting something for themselves. And what they would find is that there would be next to nothing because the Midianites would come along with these allies and just wipe it out. They would steal the crops. They would kill the livestock, leaving nothing left. And then they would bring, that is the Midianites, would bring in their livestock and allow them to graze on Israel's land. Notice verse 5. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came in the land to devastate it. They would settle in the land where Israel was living, and so their animals could feed on Israel's land. And so Israel was pretty much decimated. And that's what it says in verse verse 6. They're brought very low, it says, because of Midian. Since the time of the conquest, Israel had not been humbled like this. At least, when they were being oppressed before by the Mesopotamians and the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Philistines, they were able to to have their own land, their own houses. But now they had nothing. They lost all dignity. It was taken from them. And God moves them to a place where He wants them to be in a position of helplessness so that they would call out to Him for help. And that's what they do at the end of verse 6 and and into verse 7. It says at the end of verse 6, the sons of Israel cried to the Lord 
Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian. We've heard this before. We've seen this before. That Israel, when they're oppressed, they cry out to God for help. But what is this? It's hard to know if this is a cry that, that is genuine. Is it genuine repentance? Or is this just a standard response that they would make when they would come to a time of deep trouble? Well, you know, we still haven't asked God yet. We still haven't, uh, we, we still haven't exalt, exhausted all of our resources. We could always go to God. One thing to keep in mind is that this is mostly a new generation. Remember, it's been 200 years since Joshua has died. And even now, remember how much rest there was since the time of Deborah and Barak. It was 40 years. And so this is probably a brand new generation, most of whom had not seen the works of God through Deborah and Barak, had not maybe heard of it because their parents didn't tell them. And yet there's no excuse. Right after this, we have the evil. We have God allowing them to be oppressed. And then we have the cry for help. And what would we, would, what would we expect next? God sends what? A deliverer. But notice what God sends instead. Verse 8. That the Lord sent... When they cried out for help, verse 7, that the Lord sent a prophet. Not a deliverer right away this time. Now, He's going to send a deliverer. It's going to be Gideon. He sends a prophet. What's the purpose of a prophet? Any idea? Okay, to speak on behalf of God. He was God's spokesperson. He was God's preacher to the people. This time, God didn't respond with immediate deliverance. They would expect once we cried to God for help, here's this magic switch that gets turned on and God just sends us to deliver and we're going to be fine. But not this time. Instead, He wants them to hear Him speak. Now, we're not going to get the name of this prophet. It just says that He sent a prophet. And He sends them to the sons of Israel before we even meet Gideon. He is what we could call an unnamed prophet. But this is, if you think about it, in terms of the whole scope of the book of Judges, 350 years, there are only four recorded times where God speaks to them. One is through the first prophet, and actually it was a prophetess. Who was that? It was Deborah. That was the first time that God spoke to His people. The second time is here. The third time is going to be here in chapter 6 as well. When the angel of the Lord comes, that's a, a, a manifestation of Christ Himself, comes and speaks to Gideon and assures him that God will be with you, Gideon. The fourth time is when the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to Samson's parents. So 350 years of time and very few times when God actually speaks to His people. But here is a significant time. He stops and says, no, I'm not sending a deliverer this time. Not yet. I want you to hear me speak. I want you to understand why we're going through this cycle. Why this cycle keeps happening over and over again. And that's what he's going to explain here in verses 8-10. through And the prophet comes on behalf of God and gives a three-point alliterated sermon. Alliterated, you know, where the first letter is the same. And all. I just made this part up. But, but it is a three-point sermon. Okay, The first point is that I am your rescuer. Okay, So keep that in mind. That's the rescuer. That's our. Verse 8. 
The Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. So here's the first point. I delivered you from Egypt. He's going to go on in the next verse and say, I'm the one who dispossessed the Canaanites. So I'm the one who caused you to win the battles. You can't take any credit for beating the Egyptians. How did the Egyptians die? You just walked through on dry ground across the Red Sea. And they died because I crashed the water back down on them and they drowned. So I delivered you from Egypt. I delivered you from the Canaanites. I allowed them to be removed from the land. Just think of Jericho, a great example of how God was the one who is at work. Second point is that God is the reliever. He says at the end of verse 9 that I was the one who gave you the land. See that at the end? I dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. I gave you this land of Canaan that you have now been enjoying for the last 200 plus years. So I delivered you from Egypt. I'm your rescuer. I granted you relief by allowing you to to have this land. And then, number three, I am rejected by you. You have rejected me. That's the point of verse 10. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not obeyed me. Now, after all that God had done, think of it. God had delivered them from the oppression of the Egyptians. This is obviously their their uh, grandparents and so on. He delivered them from the Egyptians. He wiped out the Canaanites for them. He gave them the land. And here's what I ask of you. Here, here it is, verse 10. I am the Lord your God. Don't worship false gods. Here, this is what I'm asking of you. And what do you do? You haven't obeyed me. You worship them. You fear them. You reverence them. Now, in their minds, this didn't make sense. Because it was God who abandoned them. It was God who rejected them. And the reason I say that is because of verse 13. Notice Gideon's first words out of his mouth when the Lord comes to him. Let's start in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And I think that's actually a sarcastic thing because what's Gideon doing? He's threshing his wheat in the wine press. He's hiding, basically. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Verse 13, Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all His miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has what? He's abandoned us. And He's given us into the hand of Midian. What is Gideon saying on behalf of Israel? It's not we, God, who have rejected you, who have abandoned you. It's you who have rejected and abandoned us. And God's saying, no, here's what I want you to understand. This is even after the sermon, by the way, from the prophet Gideon saying this. Here's what I want you to understand. It's you, Israel, who have abandoned me. You have rejected me. 
they may have been in their minds thinking that God had abandoned them, but God wanted them to see it was they who abandoned Him. And He had every right to bring about this oppression so it would wake them up. God kept on pursuing Israel even when they badly wandered. Even when they fell into greater and greater corruption. And so what God wanted them to do was to take responsibility for the oppression that was coming upon them. He wanted them to take responsibility for their sin. And when they did this, and that's when real change could take place. So let me leave you with four points of application. Number one, wake up. Wake up. This is God's message to the people of Israel. You're not going to listen to me as I speak to you. So here's what I want to do. Here's how I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to wake you up. And if you're not going to listen to me speak through my word, if you're not going to listen to me speak through my messenger, I'm going to wake you up through circumstances. Here's how committed God is to getting His people to follow Him. You would think that after God delivers them time and time and time again that they would fall in line, but they quickly instead fall back into sin. And so God's message to them is a challenge. It is to wake up. Recognize what is going on with your sin. What, what is bringing about this oppression? think God would have to allow this oppression to come upon them if they were living in righteousness, if they were pursuing Him? Well, obviously God can use oppression to actually strengthen our faith, and so that very well could be the case. But we know from the text of Scripture that this oppression is a result of their sin, that God is using it to wake them up. So wake up. Number two, listen to God speak. Listen to God speak. In times of trouble, what we really need is not to have the trouble go away. But in times of trouble, what we really need is to hear God speak. And that's what God did for Israel. He knew that taking their trouble away was not what they ultimately needed. It was they needed to hear Him speak. And we can never and should never get away from the intake of God's Word, whether it be through hearing the preaching of God's Word, whether it be through our own Bible reading or Bible study, the best thing for us is the food of God's Word. It is what we need. Jesus said, I have food that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of the One who sent me, the Father who sent me. And that's what we need. We need the food of God's Word. There is nothing more vital to our existence as Christians than God's Word. There is nothing more vital to our existence as Christians than God's Word. Do you believe that? Here's what Jesus said, quoting Moses from Deuteronomy. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We don't live in order to pursue all the pleasures that there are in this world. 
Certainly, we should enjoy what God has given to us. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. But our primary joy ought to be in hearing God speak. So in times of trouble, what we need is not for the trouble to go away, but we need to hear God speak. Isn't that what Job needed? Job was a man of faith. Job was was a solid believer. And he was held up by God before Satan as a man who was faithful. And yet, as week followed week and month followed month, Job 